Well, uh, the the passage was read today, and uh, as you probably noted already, it's the same passage as last week. I want to continue talking about our church's mission statement and helping our understanding of what that's about. Remember that we're answering this question, what are the main priorities of the church? That's that's the question we're answering. There are many good things that we can involve ourselves in as a church, but they're not necessarily the best things, and they're not necessarily the things that God has called us to. And so what we're, what we're doing is trying to have a good understanding of what God has called us to do as a church. Now, I will say this. There are many more things that are not mentioned that we could be doing, but we're picking the main things from, from two uh, tremendous passages of Scripture, one that was read this morning. So by way of review... The mission statement says this, Providence Bible Church exists to worship God in spirit and truth, grow in knowledge through discipleship and fellowship, serve one another and the community, and share the gospel. One controlling passage was just read by Lachlan. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your mind. This is a great and first commandment. The second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and prophets. And I will say this, in the New Testament, a couple different places, it is referred to as two different ways. One is the law of Christ. You've probably heard that. The other one is the royal law. And so when you hear those two terms later in the New Testament, you know that he's referring back to what Christ said here. The second passage is the Great Commission. And he said to them, all, power, all authorities under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and uh, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you all always and even into the end of the age, which we will get to next week. But one of the one activity that we are to be involved in here on earth is and, and it will continue all through eternity is that we worship God. Won't we? And and I love that. God is awesome. And worship will be very easy in heaven for a number of reasons. One is that we will shed our sin nature, and that's a major impediment to pure worship of God. But secondly, our spiritual eyesight will be open, and we will be able to see God in all his glory. And that's the most spectacular when and I said this last week, and, and I don't you might get bored with this, but you've you got to remember this. When we get to heaven, and when you see biblical views of heaven, it's always focused on the throne. And the reason for that is no one has seen anything like God. No one is as great as God. No one is as awesome as God. And when you see something that is so magnificent and so wondrous that you can't take your eyes off of it here on earth, then you get a little glimpse of what it's going to be like in glory because we will continually be learning more about God and understanding Him more and being more humbled by how great He is. And so, therefore, worship in heaven is going to be way more intense, way more pure than what we had here. Now, I 
will say we worship God in many different ways. We worship God by our obedience. We worship God through our evangelism. We, we will, we see also that we worship God by, by reflecting his, his, uh, attention to doing everything excellently when in the things that we do around the house and so forth. We also worship God by song. The songs today were tremendous. The, the revelation song just singing the very words of scripture always brings me to tears. I don't know about you. Just awesome truths today that we sung. But in every generation, God has called a remnant out to himself for the purpose of worship. And since worship is a natural response to the revelation of God and dominates heaven, worship is to be a priority to the life of the church. All of life is worship. Now we continue today, and I want to focus on verse number 19 of of Matthew 22, which says this, the second is like to it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang depend all the law and the prophets. So let me explain this very briefly and then move on. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are about God. And they can be summarized. If you love God with all your heart, soul, and might, you can obey the first four commandments. The last table is what they call it, the first table and the last table. The second table, commandments number 6 to 10, are all about our uh, loving our neighbor. That's what they correspond to. You don't lie to someone that you love. You don't lie about them. You don't murder someone you love, do you? You don't covet the possessions of, of those that you love. Rather, you're happy for them. And I could go on and on, but you understand that. The loving your neighbor as yourself is the fulfilling of the second uh, part of the Ten Commandments. Now, you're saying to yourself, okay, I don't see love up there on that mission statement anywhere, Pastor, so where are you going with this? Well, I want you to turn to a really fascinating passage, John 13. John 13, and I want to make some connections here. John 13. John 13, the setting of it is we're at the last Passover meal. We're in the upper room. The disciples have gathered around. They've had some portions of the meal, but not all of them. And, and it's, it's, when you read scripture and you're reading a narrative, you need to pay close attention to how that narrative is framed. And I want you to see how this story that John's getting ready to tell is framed. Look at uh, verses. Um, well, let's just look at verse number one. Look at verse number one in John 13. Now, before the peace, feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out, out of this world to the Father, Notice, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's how he frames it, right? Now what does that love look like that John is getting ready to describe? Well, look at verse number four. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel and tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So according to John, how did Jesus demonstrate his love to the disciples? By being their servant, by serving them, right? 
Okay, we see that. One proof of his love is he's willing to, to lay aside his honor and to serve them. Now look at verse number 14 because now Jesus gets to his point after interacting with Peter. He says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, this passage is not teaching foot washing. I've been to, uh, by the way, when I was a kid, I went to a church that practiced foot washing. And uh, that was always really fascinating when you're a little kid, you know, the long church pews and you're sitting there coloring and all of a sudden men are taking their shoes off and thinking what's going on here. Jesus is demonstrating a principle. And here's the principle. We can serve without loving, but we cannot love without serving. Those whom you love, you serve. A major way that we show love to fellow believers, according to Jesus, is I'm going to use the word, we minister to them. We minister to them. We serve them. Now, I want you to turn to another passage. Turn to Luke chapter number 10. I want to make another connection here that that Jesus has in, in the Gospels. Turn to Luke 10, and we'll look at verse number 25. Now, this is Luke's account. Of the great commandment. We just read Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Um, this is Luke's accounting of it. Luke says this, verse number 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, so it's it's almost identical to what Matthew said, except that Luke now goes on and, and tells a little bit more about what happened. Look at what happened. Um, Luke continues in verse number 29, but he, talking about the man that asked Jesus a question, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's his question. Now, how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Are you familiar with that parable? Okay, most of you probably are. We understand that... It happened on the way down to Jericho. A man was jumped by thieves, and he was bruised and bloodied. And a a priest didn't stop. A Levite didn't stop. But a Samaritan who hates Jews, or or who who Jews hate, Jews hated the Samaritans, stopped and ministered to a Jew, put him up, took his time. He basically served that person. He served that man. And... um. And so the the proof, according to Jesus, that you are a neighbor and that you love your neighbor is that you're willing to serve to a great extent. I mean, that was extravagant service, wasn't it? The parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in Jesus' mind, if you love somebody, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to serve them. We all know how the Bible defines love. It, it defines love as giving of ourselves. You've heard plenty of sermons about agape and how agape is the quote unquote godly kind of love and God gave of himself and, and, and you're, you're giving in your love and, and we understand that's selfless. So when we look at our mission statement, because we love God, we give of ourselves to worship him, don't we? That's the first one. Secondly, because we love our neighbor, we give of ourselves by serving them. 
serve one another and the community. Um, or, or we minister to them. It's ministry. Uh, serving is the essence of love and ministering to the needs of others. Think about it for just a minute. Husbands love their wives by ministering in the most appropriate manner at that time. It might mean that at one point a husband protects his wife. It might mean at another time that he's encouraging uh, his wife when she's discouraged or tired. Another time, it might actually mean that, that men do a little bit of laundry or cook. Heaven help us all. Or any other number of chores. The more you love someone, the greater your desire is to minister to them and meet practical needs, isn't it? A bottom line. Jesus equates loving God to obeying Him and serving Him. And the message that the Lord told Moses to give the Pharaoh was, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And we understand this. Love is giving of oneself. For God so loved the world that He what? Gave. It's giving of ourselves to one another. We love our children by giving to them our service. Think about it. When they're infants, literally that's all we do for our infants is we serve them. We do nothing else but serve that little bundle of joy. Change their diapers, their stinky diapers. We bathe them, we feed them, and, and all these different things. And so this leads us to the conclusion that serving one another is a natural byproduct of love. You want to know if a congregation is a loving congregation? Then that congregation is busy with the one another's of the New Testament. Bottom line. Paul connects serving to the great commandment in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 13. Turn, turn to Galatians 5. We'll look at this together. I was going to throw it up there, but, um, but I want you to look at a couple other verses too. So Galatians 5, verse number 13. Paul connects serving with the great commandment. Now, um, this is all about legalism. And he says this, he says, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See how he connects Jesus words, love your neighbor as yourself with serving one another. But he doesn't stop there. Look at chapter six and verse number two. Look at Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's that law of Christ idea again. Law of Christ is, is Jesus' great commandment that he give, gave in Matthew 22.39. Love your neighbors yourself. And he keeps talking to them. And so down in chapter 6 and verse number 10, he, he goes on to say, So then as we have an opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So once again, he's really, really talking about the idea that if you love someone, you're really going to want to serve them. Quite literally, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you were saved to serve. Number one, serve God Almighty. Number two, serve your neighbor. That's what we were uh, saved to do. We were saved uh, to, to serve. Now, we call them something, the, the, the way that we serve, a lot of times we use the term spiritual gifts, right? 
So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. I want to talk about spiritual gifts for just a little bit. And I, I want I want you to see some things about it. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's a tremendous chapter on spiritual gifts. And when you read this passage, you see that Paul does mention the word gifts. If you look at down in verses, beginning in verse number four, he mentions the word gifts. He mentions the word service and he mentions the word activities. So he's talking about things that God has given, a ministry tasks and acts and deeds when it comes to activities. And um, we see several important truths about what we commonly call spiritual gifts. Now, let me pause. We, we've taken spiritual gifts assessment tests, some of us. I, I enjoy taking them. Uh, um, the older I get, the more defined they become. When I was younger, they were less defined than what they are, are now. And I understand why that is. But, but when we say spiritual gifts, a lot of people struggle with what does that mean? Because you read what the Bible says and you think, okay, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. Um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, some kind of compassionate, merciful person. But when you, when you look at what Paul said, it really adds up to a little bit more than that. And so the first thing I want you to see, and we're going to talk about this, is that all gifts, all spiritual gifts were given to you by God. Look at verse number four. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same what? Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same. God who empowers them all in everyone. What did we just have mentioned there? The Trinity. The Trinity was just mentioned. And so Paul is not really saying, look, what he's not saying is, well, if you have a spiritual gift, the Holy Spirit gives that to you. And if you serve, that Jesus gives that to you. What he's saying is that the whole Trinity is involved in giving you what you have to serve the body. And the most important truth that he's trying to lay out here, it's endowed to you by God. It's endowed to you by God himself. Every ability, every um, uh, talent that you have is given to you by God. Even, even I was talking to someone this week, and we were talking about even the very fact, it should cause humility knowing that the very fact that our intellect is given to us by God. Isn't that amazing? It, it, it's, really, it's really neat. Secondly, the gifts are given for the good of others. Look at verse number 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. So your gifts are given for the common good. Now he's writing to a church, so your gifts are given to the common good of the body. Your abilities, your talents are given to you, not for your own personal gain, but rather for the good of others. Paul clearly says that what you've been given is not for your own pleasures, but to be used in the service of God. So let's let's think about this for just a minute, okay? Some of you are good with children. And so therefore, you can help young mothers. You can serve young mothers by help them serve serve them by helping them worship corporately. Man, I really butchered that, didn't I? Let me try this one more time, getting away from my notes. If you're good with children, one of the ways that you can serve young mothers is to help them worship by 
ministering to their children and the babies in the nursery, right? That's, that's a gift. A lot of people don't think of that as a spiritual gift, but it is. You don't want me back there. Trust me. Some of you are good with people and, and love being around people and are encouraging. You could go visit elderly shut-ins and, and people who have those kind of needs and encourage them. Others are, are good at cooking and therefore could minister to those who are sick or, or whatever else by, by giving a, a meal. One of the things I, I think is really fun about our church, did you know that there are men who, who have um, cut wood and done small repairs for widows in the church? Kept them in heat for the winter. Now that's serving, isn't it? Uh, so if you have a chainsaw and an axe and a splitter or something like that, uh, you can do that. Others help in financial planning. I want to talk about musicians for just a minute. Musicians. Musicians, did you know that this is not a performance up here? I know a lot of musicians have gone through the whole recital thing. And, you know, the teacher that if you, my, my daughter's violin teacher in Memphis, if it was not absolute perfection, I'm not lying to you, absolute perfection, uh, she was all over those students. Um, she was so, her recitals were, she was so particular about performance that whatever piece a, a child was doing on violin or a teenager was doing on violin was something they'd learned a year prior. She wouldn't let them do new material because she didn't want them to mess up. But musicians, this is not a performance. And what I find, it, this has been true in all my years of ministry, 30 years of ministry, is that musicians don't want to come up here because they don't, they may not be as good as they once were and they're afraid uh, that uh, it's not going to be a perfect performance. Who cares? If you're doing it for the living God, just get up and do whatever it is. I mean, I stand up here and make a fool of myself most Sundays. Right? Surely you can get up here and, and, and um, minister to the whole church. Uh, I love music and I love hearing the talents of the musicians in our church. And so your gifts are given for the good of others. Let me give you something else. This is exciting. This is really exciting to me. God works through your gifts. Now look at verse number 6. 1 Corinthians twelve six. I want to point out two um, verses here. Verse number six says, but it is the same God who what? Empowers them all in everyone. Look at verse number 11. All these are empowered by the one and same spirit who apportions to each individual as he wills. That word empower is a, a Greek verb, energeto. You probably guess we get the word energy the English word energy from it, and it literally means to work. In other words, the gifts that you have, God works through your gifts. And so people have these prayers, God, I only want to be used by you. Lord, help me to be used by you. You know how you can be used by God? Use whatever God has given you to minister to other people in in the body. That sounds really weird in, in our minds because we only think about, well, you know, if I'm witnessing, I'm being used by God. If I'm teaching, I'm being used by God. If I'm preaching, whatever else. But that is absolutely untrue. 
You say, that might not sound like spiritual ministry. Well, let me show you spiritual ministry from the Old Testament. You ready? This is, this is one that we've covered before. Exodus 28, verse number 3. This is concerning the building of the tabernacle. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him from my priesthood. So here in Exodus 28, God says, I, I filled people who have different skills with the spirit of skill. In verse number uh, two of chapter 31, he says this, See, I've, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with the ability... Notice ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Application is very simple. What ability you have, dear believer, was endowed to you by God. And if you take that ability and you use it to serve others, God is literally working through you. That makes it a whole lot easier, doesn't it? Financial accountants. You can use your financial knowledge to help somebody who doesn't have as much as you. Uh, those who have certain trade skills can use that trade in service of others. Those who, who have that gift of encouragement can encourage others. You teachers can, can gently correct someone possibly when they're, when they're being led astray by false doctrine. I mean, there are so many hundreds and hundreds of applications of this, how we can serve one another in the church. But know this that this is how God works through you, and this is how the body grows, and this is how God is glorified. So if you're a teacher, then teach. If you're a card writer, write cards. If you're a handyman, do handyman things. If you mow, mow lawns. If you're a graphic artist, help with the church publications. The list is endless. Every single one of them was given to the body of Christ. And verse 11 says that it was apportioned to you by God's will. Now, let me say one more thing. We're going to move on to the next point. There's kind of two dynamics that we find in a church, how this works. One would be the ability to work here on corporately on Sunday, um, church-wide type ministry. For example, we, we have ladies that come in and fold bulletins. And, and put the inserts in the bulletins. That's spiritual ministry. We have, we have men who a- after every Sunday service go around, make sure all the doors are locked, make sure that the garbage is taken out, that all the lights are off, that, that need to be shut off. That is spiritual service. We have sound booth guys that get here early and they're here during the week and musicians who practice. This is all spiritual service. So there's that dimension of it. The second dimension, and I know you understand this, is the stuff that happens, the majority of it that happens outside the church. When you're one-on-one, when you're over at somebody's house, when you're in the hospital, when you're mowing somebody's yard, or whatever else it is, there's two big dimensions to it. And so just open your, your heart and ask the Lord, Lord, how can I serve your body? Let me give you one more. One more here. No gift is too small for the body. Now, I know people say that. I've heard it. And Paul knew it too, and that's why he went on and said um, said what he did. Because some of you are saying, well, I can't get up there and speak like you can. 
Or I can't, I can't get up and sing like these people do. Or I can't play the piano, so my gift is too small. Paul said that is absolutely not true. Look in 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll continue in verse number 14. Look at how Paul talks about that argument. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, would that make it any less part of the body? If an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? His argument is so simple. It's it's actually kind of funny. Could you imagine if all of us were musicians? Okay, for today's Sunday school class, we're going to sit around and sing Kumbaya. Not much would be learned, would it? Could you imagine if we were all computer geeks? Or if we were all just a bunch of cooks? Actually, I don't think I'd mind that one too much. I am no, it never ceases to amaze me how God stitches the body together with varied and multi-talented abilities. Uh, Heather and I were, were visiting someone, or I was visiting someone in the hospital. No, Heather was with me at that time. Um, someone in the hospital just recently and got done and I, I walked out and I was telling her in the car, I said, you know, I, I have done hospital visits for my whole ministry. And I never feel that I'm good at a hospital visit. I feel that I'm terrible because I watch people who have that natural gifting walk into the hospital room and immediately the person they're visiting feels a home. They start serving that person, meeting natural needs. And, and it really, it humbles me to realize that there are people that do it so much better than I do. My gifting doesn't run that way necessarily compared to some of the people that do. It's just, it's just amazing how God stitches the body together. But look, he continues the argument, Paul does, in verse number 20. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which is our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. Here's his conclusion. So composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together." What that means, what he's literally saying is that most of the honor in a church body will go to those people who do the quiet things. Isn't that what he says? That's that's what Paul says. In other words, nursery ministry, straightening chairs, the, the, the putting away of the tables and the chairs and all those things that people just take for granted. And going over to people's houses and mowing and, and all the stuff that I've mentioned before. I don't have to go back through that list. You know what I'm talking about. Bringing people to church. Bringing people to church. All of these things will one day receive greater honor 
than the loudmouth that stands up front preaching to everybody every, day, every Sunday. Because the principle is this. When you take the time to do the little things that only you and God see, the whole body is benefited and God is glorified. That's what it is. So what are the little things that you could be doing that God has allowed you the ability to do? One more application and we'll finish up. Ready? Last one. The level of congregational care depends upon you. Paul said that all these gifts were given to you, the congregation, to care for the congregation. Love that believers... um, Love other believers enough to serve them with the gifts. He says this. He says, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This church, for the, the, the congregation to be well cared for, means that everybody has to be doing a part. It doesn't depend upon me. It doesn't depend upon the elders or the deacons even. The level of congregational care is directly proportionate to how much care whoever's sitting in your seat provides for everybody else. Isn't that what Paul said? Now, I personally think that Providence Bible is a very loving congregation. And and I think we do a very good job of that. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir. Now, if you look at our mission statement, I'm not going to put it back on the screen, but it says serve one another in the community. I just want to briefly talk about community and I'll be done. All through the history of Christianity, the Christian church has has done works in the community. But we have to ask a question about our work in the community. And the question is this. What should our good works be used for in the community? I believe it's twofold. I believe first and foremost, we do good work in the community to glorify God Almighty. Then secondly, we do good work in the community so that it naturally aids evangelism. Now, there's a tricky part to this. And the tricky part is this. First, we don't want to be constantly accused of the, the old bait and switch. In other words, you know, let me wash your car and I'm going to give you the gospel while I'm washing the car. Or whatever else it may be. People, people latch onto that real quick and, and pick up on it. Rather, just do something because you love someone. And then maybe at a different time give them the gospel. See what I mean? So we have to make sure that we're not doing the old bait and switch. Secondly, and this is the bigger problem, actually, is that because there's a literally an unlimited number of needs in any given community, our service in the community can overshadow our evangelistic presence in that community. It, it happens all the time on the mission field. It happens here where you start doing a good work and people find out about it and it becomes more and more and more of a logistical problem. And the original intent of the ministry, which was to show love to the community and have a chance for evangelism, just kind of disappears. So we have to make sure that our social work does not interfere with the spiritual work that we have and we, that we don't let our primary mission be overshadowed. Now, to tell you the truth, I don't know how to balance these things out. 
I really don't. It's, it's a work in progress for me. Well, let's draw this to close. What is my main desire for you? What's the Lord's main desire for you? My desire is that the Holy Spirit will compel you to show your love to one another in the church through your service. Number two, that you will realize that no gift is unimportant. And number three, that God will show you by your service or actually or even lack thereof, how much you really love the body. Dear believer, and I'm talking to everybody here, member, non-member light, if you've been in this congregation for any significant period of time, what are you doing to minister to other people in this congregation? How much do you love the people in the congregation? I know you love God, and I know you love others, and God gives you the ability to show that love by serving others. Will you do that? We thank you, Lord, for the the um, love that God has shown us. We love because you first loved us. We thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture, how that um, how that we can show our love, and we thank you, Lord, for all the love that is shown in this congregation. It's it's just astounding how much love is shown in this congregation. I pray, Lord, that that we will just burn with a desire to glorify you in the work that we do um, in serving one another. And I pray that you'll be pleased with our, our sacrifice of service to one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.